How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Setting Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Jade, and this is Future Setting. G'day folks, I'm about to introduce you really quickly to an absolute energy-filled gung-ho creature of the world, Ronnie Khan. You guys will probably know her for all of the um, eccentric and magnificent jewellery that she gets around in, but she is also the founder of Oz Harvest and she calls herself a social entrepreneur and she has written a magnificent book. I'm going to keep the intro really short today because this woman completely speaks for herself in a way that I never, ever, ever could. So enjoy the conversation. See you on the other end. You had an incredibly eclectic childhood growing up in an apartheid South Africa before moving to Israel to a kibbutz. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and whether or not, I guess the question in there is whether or not you think that is what has made you the incredible human that you are today. So first of all, thank you. <laughs> Lovely to be with you. Um, I'm going to start at the end. I don't think that I'm an incredible human. I absolutely believe that where I'm at today is that I have found my destiny and found exactly what it is that my repurposed life has led me to. Um, but if I now go back to the beginning of your question, which really was about my childhood, there's no doubt that the values that I imbued subliminally, that what I saw around me and growing up in apartheid South Africa have definitely made me who I am today. But the truth is every experience that we have along the journey of life brings us to who we are at that particular moment when we question ourselves. But South Africa was particularly poignant, particularly powerful because of the nature of the mandate that the government created, which then informed my life. Mm. And sowed deep seeds around social justice and equity and equality and decolonization. Yes, when you see inequality visibly before your eyes and when it's called out and it's it's literally stark. I mean, black and white is the <laughs> is obviously what I saw. But yes, it's very hard not to have that affect your life. Mm. And then you went to Israel. Yeah, the exact opposite, <laughs> in a way. Exact opposite because not only did I go to Israel, which is a very eclectic um, cultural melting pot, I went to live on a kibbutz, which is really the principles of kibbutz are socialism and the principles of that is everybody works according to their ability and gets according to their need, which was the exact opposite of anything that I had lived up until that point. 
I love that. You get according to your ability and you get according to your need or you work according to your ability and you get according to your need, which really builds this cyclical sense of reciprocity and mutual obligation and mutual support and also in the shadow of this sort of deep commitment to what it means to be part of a community, an ability to thrive as an individual in the things that speak to you and your capabilities and your interest areas and your truth. And you said a moment ago that you have found your destiny. Did it take you moving to Australia to do that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I certainly didn't find it in South Africa. I didn't find it in Israel. And I did find it in this, you know, last 20 years of my life. Mm. Mm. And how did you find it? The reason I ask that is because so many people we speak to say that having a deep sense of purpose is important, but also combining that with a deep sense of place is equally important where you feel like you truly belong somewhere and that's where you can then thrive and expand on your own Mm. capabilities. So did Australia wrap its arms around you and and make you feel like you instantly belonged? Absolutely. I felt that this was home from the moment that we got here, which is a very interesting thing. And, and you said something very interesting about this notion of place where you belong. I, I, I want to just ensure that listeners or the our audience the people we're talking to because you and I can talk to each other but those listening I want to make it clear that I don't I love the notion of the place being such an important part but I would hate for somebody to think that you can't find your purpose and you can't find your destiny because in a way whilst Australia has wrapped its arms around me and this is my place My home is within me, and I take that with me anyway. So one, and I think that's really an important distinction because it is about how we can be at one with oneself anywhere and not be defined by the place. So whilst Australia is my home, and I love it, the sense of well-being, the sense of destiny, the sense that I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be is, and do is tied into what it is that I do, not where I do that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I would love to explore what it is that you do a little bit more Um when people think of you and hear of you, you know, we, we instantly think of your eclectic, beautiful fashion sense and that we can hear those who are listening can't see that you're moving and talking with your hands as much as you are. But uh, Ronnie has got a beautiful range of jewellery draped on her fingers and around her neck and these gorgeous big tortoiseshell glasses and they are sort of, they are quintessentially you. Yeah. Um, but actually, if you scratch a little bit below that, there is so much that you have reached out to do. And while we know you for the work that you've done as a social entrepreneur with Oz Harvest, and we know that you wrote your book, A Repurposed Life, a couple of years ago, I get the sense that you know that none of those are singular things, that all of those are really a, a big or individual components that form what is otherwise a melting pot of a, of a meshed web that doesn't yeah. allow silos, that all sort of is as important as each other. 
Yeah, totally. And I, I think it's really important, you know, and, and again, it also ties back to that very beginning, beautiful intro you gave of me, which is so lovely. But, you know, we all, first of all, every single one of us has a story. Every single one of us is complex and has this beautiful, challenging, deep, profound web <laughs> within which we live. And our frame of mind often defines the how we live and the kind of life we live. So when one of the things I know people look at me and think of is, well, maybe she's so lucky because I've been told that a million times, yes. you know, that I've found my calling. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't luck. No. <laughs> but also you know, that that they themselves think they couldn't have what I've got. Now, not everyone has to start a charity and do what I've done to know what their purpose is, to find their destiny and to be able to live what I call a very full and engaged life. And I think that's a really important thing to also remind people that I only found my calling when I was 50. So for the people who are listening and think, oh, it'll never happen for them, you know, and they're 28 or 30 or whatever, (laughs) just know that it is a lifetime of work and it can come to, callings can come in many different ways and they can be different at different times in one's life. You know, when I lived pre-Oz Harvest, I was an event producer. You know, I was the event best event producer I could possibly be. I loved every job that I did until Oz Harvest took over and became even more fulfilling and more precious because it had such a broader remit. So I think it's really, it's, it's it, it, first of all, what I do is broader than what most people know because people would think about Oz Harvest as rescuing food and deliver it to people in need, which is really what we do. But we also educate and we're full of innovation and we you know, engage on so many levels with so many different um, parties in order to impact bigger, you know, on our planet. Just so much that if when you scratch the surface, there is so much more. And mm-hmm. it's about my team developing and growing them and inviting curiosity and being as broad and as deep as one can be. Let's scratch the surface a little bit. So part of one of the things that you do is NEST, so the Nutrition Education Sustenance Training. Yeah. Which I love. I really love because you can't do any of this stuff just by, by endlessly handing out um you know, food to vulnerable people. There needs to be education that goes with it. There needs to be advocacy that goes with it. There needs to be, you know, a a calling to others to come and continue to support, to maintain that volunteer base, all of those things that are part of the complexity. Um, Tell us a little bit about NEST though. So I will because you really touched on something very, very important. You cannot, you know, first of all, I created Arts Harvest to solve problems, not perpetuate. So I don't want to give out more food to more people for the rest of our lives. I want there to be less food wasted Mm -hmm. and I want less people to need food. 
So the reason Nest was created was I recall um, going to, we had just had a call from MasterChef to pick up a huge whole salmon, fresh, that had been sitting on ice through the through a chute and it would have gone to waste and they called and said, would we like it? So we collected that in a refrigerated vehicle with tra- trained drivers who know how to take and look after food so that it arrives in the same condition and we took it to an agency. And we took it to an agency, a charitable organization that had a chef that we knew would know what to do with fish. And he called me a couple of days after they'd cooked this whole fish and served it and said, I have to share with you that people came up to me and said, we're not going to eat this. And he asked them, what do you mean? Why wouldn't you eat this? It's beautiful, it's fresh, and it came from this, and it was sitting on ice, and men brought it, then I cooked it and poached it in the best possible way. Why won't you eat it? And they said, because it's pink, and we've never seen pink fish. The point was, that made me realize, we're starting to bring exquisite quality food to people, and we need them to understand a broader base of food other than white bread, jam, bangers, and mash, which is often what all they would get. And so NEST was really about teaching about nutrition, about sustainability, but also teaching people how to cook and how to work with different products and how to not have to go and take X amount of dollars and spend it on fast food when they could nourish themselves in a different way. So that was the genesis of NEST. And and it's beautiful because it goes into our charitable organizations. But now it's also teaching a, a variety of youth and through councils we try and get into because so many people leave school and don't know how to cook and don't know how to look after themselves. But particularly often the chefs in the organizations we deliver to are volunteers who might never have had experience. So NEST is a very precious and beautiful part about teaching people, one, how to nourish themselves in a new, in a sustainable way, but also how to cook and how to look after themselves. It also gives people confidence. I have a beautiful story of a woman who'd been through our NEST program. She was in a, in a, a refuge and she actually did it twice because each it's always different because it depends what products we have. And my NEST coordinator, some months later, went into council to, he'd been invited to deliver a talk around NEST. And there, there was a lot of people in the audience, a lot of people who work there. And he said he saw a person do this, put her hand up a couple of times and then put it down, but at the very end, put her hand up again. And he said yes to her. And she said, I just want you to know that I went through your NEST program when I was in the refuge and it taught me so much. It gave me self-confidence. It gave me the ability to actually leave and look, know that I could look after myself. So it's beautiful. I, I want You've just talked a lot about nourishing ourselves and that's through food obviously because that's what Oz Harvest does but I want to change tact ever so slightly because 
It seems to me, and I, I do a lot of work in the food system as well, and we're surrounded by people who are deeply empathetic, who believe greatly uh, and to the detriment of themselves often for the cause. And because we're pushing against systemic barriers and and uh, processes that really aren't set up to support our way of thinking, you're swimming against the tide strongly and it's exhausting and it's relentless and um, with every sentence that you utter you're you're required to educate at the same time because people don't always understand your perspective or you know the the view or the lens that you're taking I would love to know how you have navigated this relentlessness and I guess I'm probably asking from a personal perspective lots of the people we interview are in this space and have come through that process of very active frontline activism and then have moved into advocacy and then often what we're finding is that people that we're talking to are moving into land-based soil-based you know food growing themselves how are you nourishing yourself and your team yeah so first of all you're 100% right we've forgotten the value of food and the system is broken and there is so much work to do and education and advocacy and activism are the way to do that. But education actually does allow us and gives us so many avenues to do that. So from a personal point of view, I don't see anything as an obstacle. I see it as a challenge. Obstacles block and challenges are things you can navigate. So first of all, Um, So that's really my mindset. I just don't see obstacles. So, and challenges. (laughs) Here I go. (laughs) And also, I made a decision years and years ago that really I'm so blessed, I'm so privileged. So gratitude is a huge way that informs my life and allows me to navigate my life. I wake up in the morning and I'm in a bed. And how precious is that? And I look up and I've got a roof over my head and I look out of a window. So I've already got a very core element that is so enriching that I would never take that for granted. So gratitude informs everything. And within that gratitude, I've made a decision that I wake up and I've got a choice every single day as to how I will behave, how I will be positive or negative, how I will be live my life. And I've chosen to live it in a very positive um, space that, that allows me to take action to make a difference to the people around me. Mm. So, so, so you've defined enough you know you have enough and then what you have an abundance of over and above your enough is energy and focus and the ability to storytell on behalf of others and articulate for others and advocate for the system changes that we need to see. Yeah, and so not only is the commitment of Oz Harvest and the purpose of Oz Harvest to nourish our country, it's about nourishing myself and everybody around and I am nourished by knowing that you know everything we do makes a difference and that's why you know 
in in the book, the last, and maybe we'll get to that, the very last acknowledgement is that story of the teaspoon. But that's why I say not everybody has to start a charity. You know, you can be the best you can be in the job that you're doing. And it's about your mindset and it's about how you make a difference to the people around you at your work. You know, I've chosen to make a difference to the people around me, both at my work and then to empower them and all of us to make a difference to the greater society. Mm. Which looks different for everybody. We talk about people's on-ramps all the time. So my on-ramp is food growing and storytelling and other people's is, you know, recycling or upcycling fashion. Yeah, but it could also be going to work and buying coffee or making, having cookies at home and bringing it into the workspace and seeing people smile when they eat your yummy food. And share with each other. And shared, exactly. And so... You know, the lens is do something. You know, yesterday I parked somewhere and when I left, I still had three quarters of an hour on my parking and a woman parked across the road and it's the same meters across the road and she, I I could see she was worried. I ran across the road and banged on her window and she kind of (laughs) said, I just wanted to give you three quarters of an hour if it's helpful, you know. You didn't have to be a, a charity warrior to do that. <laughs> no, no, that's just generosity of human spirit. Exactly, and generosity of spirit is really where I think a very full and nourished life comes from. Mm. What made you decide to write a book? Oof. Oof. I actually don't know that I ever did. I think it just evolved. <laughs> it decided for you. From the Had I really planned to write a book, I probably would have kept a journal of every story that happened along the way, which I never did. (laughs) Um, Early on, people had said to me, you should write a book, but it just never occurred to me, one, that I'd have anything to say, or two, you know, it just was the furthest thing from my mind. But then many of the things I do today are the furthest things from my mind at some point. Um, But somehow it just felt I reached that point that people were I was mentor I mentored people all the time people were asking me a lot of times the same questions Mm. but from so many different angles and I just thought well perhaps if I write my story which shows that I'm just a very ordinary person who landed up doing something extraordinary Anybody could do that. Anybody can do that. And then maybe there'll be lessons to learn. And, you know, people stop me on the street now and say, thank you, and I've earmarked pages, and, you know, it's my Bible, and it's my toolkit, and it's shifted and changed me. And so whilst it was very painful at times to <laughs> to spit out all <laughs> that came out into the book um I am thrilled actually because because enough people have told me that it's they cried they laughed and they enjoyed it appreciated (laughs) for those who haven't read the book would you be so kind as to share the teaspoon story oh I'd love to and and I just want to share something else I mean the 
I had never thought I could write a book because I knew that I, I didn't have the patience and I wasn't going to sit down and write the book. And so I had looked when I was approached to write the book, people came and said they'd like to write my book, which was really beautiful and and was about to really go with someone when a, a, my my a, my son's girlfriend of my son came and said, I don't understand what's with you. Your daughter-in-law would be the most best person to write this book. She knows you and she's watched you and she, she'd she be great. And I thought, oh, my God, I need to keep my son and I need to keep my daughter-in-law. This <laughs> is not <laughs> going to be a good idea. And we sort of thought, all right, we'll give it three months and we'll see how we go. <laughs> But just wanted to share that writing it together with Jessie, my daughter-in-law, was a very precious thing. Oh, Painful at times. It would have been very, very. She felt like she was having to extract teeth, you know, <laughs> men's teeth, and I thought she was, you know, pushing. And, but it was a beautiful, you know, her sensibility was very um, beautiful. But the story is based on a quote from an Israeli author, a very wonderful Israeli author, Amos Oz, who's written about 46 books translated into every language. Um, and I came across it because he had passed away and I was asked to say a few words um, at a memorial service for him. And this is the story, and, and it co comes from a quote from a book of his, and it goes like this. In the event of a huge conflagration, like a fire, we all, as human beings, have three options as to how we could behave in the event of this happening in front of our eyes. And number one, we can look at that fire and run away as fast as we can. And number two, we... Sorry, I'm just reaching for something. Number two, we can you know, running away from the fire and leaving those to burn is an option. And number two, we can write an angry letter to the newspaper demanding that the people responsible get punished. Or number three, we can run and find a bucket. And if we cannot find a bucket, we can run and find a jug. And if we cannot find a jug, we can run and find a teaspoon. And I know a teaspoon is tiny and that fire is huge. But each and every one of us has a teaspoon, millions of us. And if we all use our teaspoon, we can put out that fire. And so I would like to invite you all to join the Order of the Teaspoon. <laughs> when we wear a teaspoon on our shoulder or I wear one around my neck, It's and, and I do now have them on my website because, oh, where is it? somewhere Everyone's uh, this, but Ronnie is holding her, her teaspoon in her hand and she's holding it to her shoulder and it's all <laughs> and <laughs> I have a teaspoon on my finger that is the handle of a teaspoon to remind myself and that is really what the order of the teaspoon is all about to use our teaspoons every day in whatever way we can to make a difference tiny random act of kindness, random act of goodness to somebody else. And so that really is how I finish the book because it is a call to action to every single one of us. 
Um, in my case, it could be, you know, if I were talking to an audience, I'd say, please think about the value of food. Don't waste it. Cook it. Use it up and do a, you know, a whole thing. But every single one of us has got a way and, to, to make a difference. With our teaspoon. She has firmly held her teaspoon throughout that entire conversation, which is so very glorious to see. (laughs) So all of us are invited to the order of the teaspoon. We can all do it and we can look, take our agency and reckon with the reality of life that's in front of us and the way in which we make decisions. In the beginning when I handed out the book, I, I added a teaspoon to it. Within the book was a teaspoon to any of the people that I gifted the book. And I always try, if I am gifting the book, it always goes with a teaspoon. And I will share with you that some very powerful people have have my teaspoon, a teaspoon. They're all pre-loved and they all, people now send me teaspoons <laughs> because their grandmothers collected teaspoons and they never knew what to do with them. So I get a whole range of teaspoons. This one that I'm holding is from Toowoomba. How you know, souvenir you teaspoons. But anyway, but Someone, you know, it's, it's. I'm not going to mention her name, but she went through a really grueling, she's a magnificent leader and went through a really grueling time. And she called me after and said, I just need you to know my teaspoon was in my handbag a lot and has never, never leaves me for anything that I need to go through. So it becomes a powerful talisman for action. It does. And I feel a little bit like that's the salt that you're spreading around the world or perhaps the sugar rather than the salt that you're spreading around the world because you can, because you feel like your cup is full and you feel like you have enough and you're able to then share whatever that needs to be for others, but they have something in their hand that they can go forth with and make their decisions in a way that suits and works for them, but actually is also part of the bigger movement. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, there's nothing prescriptive. That's the whole point. That's why I keep saying you don't have to look at my life and envy it. All you have to do is look in the mirror. You look in the mirror and in the mirror is where you find the joy. You find the answers. It's not on the shelf of a supermarket. Can't buy purpose somewhere else. It's got to come from within. And we find it by thinking about even going back to our childhood, thinking what is it that brought us the most joy? What is it? And try and embed that in some way in your life. Because So, Ronnie, your, your purpose seems so very clear. And I would say that for most of the people that I interview, they too have a very clear purpose. But I would love to know... Are there times where that purpose wavers and shakes just a little? And if it does, how do you manage to navigate through that? So I am incredibly blessed and privileged and my purpose doesn't waver because because it's way bigger than me. My purpose is to serve. I am here to serve. I am a vessel that is, you know, the means that I do that right now is making sure that good food doesn't go to waste. But it could be to educate and it could be this. It is all about serving. I am to be of service to others. That is my purpose. 
And that mentality passes on to those who contribute their efforts to pictures that are for the greater good. And that, you know, takes in volunteerism. I imagine you uh, have a huge number of volunteers right across the country that make Oz Harvest happen. And without them, I imagine it probably couldn't happen to the extent that it does. How do you nurture and nourish and show gratitude to your volunteers to ensure that 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 so very common story of volunteer burnout doesn't happen? So you're 100% right. We've got over 4,000 volunteers. Mm -hmm. And in the last six to eight months or year, where organisations have been struggling to get volunteers, we've probably onboarded 1,000. People love our energy and, and also love the notion that when you come to volunteer with us, Harvest, we are not here to say you have got a volunteer every week, this time, that place. We listen. Our, our whole point of volunteering is people are giving us their most precious commodity, and that is their time and their skills. And we will, again, it's all about appreciation. So on Saturday morning, we had we, we celebrated our fifth anniversary at our free supermarket. Now, our free supermarket is this beautiful place with all, all based on dignity and respect. It's a take what you need and give if you can philosophy. If, not give what you can, give if you can. And it's all run, we have a manager, but it's all run on volunteers. And I think there were probably 60 to 100 people. It takes about 100 volunteers a week to keep this going. And on Saturday morning, the celebration was really to thank our volunteers because without them, we could not do this. Every part of Oz Harvest, I say I'm a magnet for magnificent people, but Oz Harvest is a magnet for magnificent people. Yeah. And for us, it's really about acknowledging that it's, it's the same with our funders. They come to us and we say, what can we do for you? It's obviously what you can do for us. We need your money. Or we need your skills, <laughs> yes. mostly your money. We need your skills. We need your food. But here's what we can give you back. And that's really, it's about a trans, a transposition of values and of, of appreciation. So I think the way we keep our volunteers, because we do have very, very high volunteer retention, is where grateful and we show that gratitude and we we don't make volunteers come and have to commit we say what is your time frame what have you got to give us oh you've got once a month how about this that would work beautifully for us once a month but if you want to give us two days a week boy we could use that and this is how we use that and so we've just got people who come in pop their heads in every now and again, but we've got people who literally give us days and weeks and months and years. What they can, when they can. Exactly. And they tell me, and this is what I heard on Saturday, over and over again was they get way, way more than they give. Because mm -hmm. really I think getting you know, is is the ultimate. And we think that we'll get when somebody gives us 
something. But honestly, you just get so much when you give. Mm. It's interesting the different ways that people fill their cup, isn't it? So for some people exactly. it's purely transactional and it's exactly. it's black and white, it's that money. But for the vast majority of us, actually, the thing that fills our cup is so much more than that and sometimes even more than we can find the words for because words simply minimise what, what that full cup feels like or, or should look yeah, like. But, but it's interesting because more and more and certainly I think as a result of COVID, more and more people have realised that transactional, pure, I give you my time, you give me my money, it's not working, didn't mm. stop working through COVID mm. because it gave people the opportunity forced to stop and think and reevaluate. When we lost control of all the things we thought we controlled, yes. it has, you know, we, we wear masks, we wore masks, but suddenly we were more intimately connected and more visible, you know, you're in my study at home. Nobody <laughs> ever seen my study at home pre-COVID. Yes. So it's, you know, so we were more real, more human, exactly. more vulnerable, more open, yeah. more willing. Yeah. Yeah, more capable yeah. of sharing our true selves without the mask, the mask yeah. that's perpetuated by, <clears throat> you know, this industrial age of endless growth. Yeah. So I, I've just got back from a six-week book tour in the States and I found, you know, as you just said a moment ago, sometimes the themes that keep coming up and the stories that you start to tell are different depending on or regardless of where you are and sort of how the question was asked, but you start to share the same stories. And the one that kept coming up while I was in the States was that the industrial um, order or the industrial system has actually given us so much. So why can't we, It's what's wrong with actually trying to seek a return to that? And so rather than trying to respond to that directly, my question was always to them, what's wrong with trying to recreate an ability to interact with each other without the black and white of money or without the square walls that wrap around our house and make it easy to shut the gate on the problem outside yeah. what about if we actually put energy and effort and concerted focus on learning how to reconnect as humans to something that is bigger than all of us in this relational way yeah well this I think um this beautiful phrase I wish I had created it but I didn't <laughs> a friend Vince Frost did and it it's community is the new immunity you know we knew we need connection and yes the systems that we've had to date have perpetuate more value for less people than more people getting value from the system. And that's really, I guess, what's wrong with the industrial world. And it's not that it's wrong. It's just that it's now evolved and something broke. And in that breaking, it opened up the new possibilities. And I think that's what's so exciting about coming out of this period. We should never wish to go back to what was because, in a way, it was badly broken and what COVID has done for us is it's actually lifted a veil and removed a mask for who we actually the potential for who we could be you know if you think about it you could see the Himalayas for the first time there were cities that had never seen their skies and when airplanes and smog and 
filth and dirt weren't filling the atmosphere, they could see things in nature that they'd never seen before. And so we don't ever want to go back to that as much as people are racing towards this something, you know, this new... Familiar. ...coming back out of this. But we have to hold on to some of the very precious things that came out of this because mm. they were hugely beneficial. Mm. I think also we were reminded that, <clears throat> as uh, Kristen Bradley from Milkwood said, we're actually humans. We're not machines. And we actually operate best when we honour our humanness, the way we interact, the pace in which we move, the things we undertake or put our physical selves through and our emotional and mental selves through. Yeah. And and that's actually harder to do than it sounds because we're well, sort of in this we, become, we had become human doings and not human beings. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really something that's so deep deep to ponder and profound it is how do we be and how do we be on this planet and honor the planet honor nature honor what's allowed us to get to where we are today rather than having destroyed it and we've destroyed too much and we have to protect it and only we can do this Mm -hmm. so how does a woman who um he understands all of this and is so deeply in tune with the humanness of our race, <clears throat> still do as much as you have done because you are a doer by nature and mm. there's a really fine balance that, that has to play out in there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I certainly spend a lot of time being. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it might be between midnight and five <laughs> in the morning. It doesn't matter. But I have been blessed with a lot of energy and I do have a lot of energy and I do have an ability to fit in a lot in a day. I went out on a van uh, on Wednesday, which is just the most wonderful thing to do because it just really reminds me what it is we set out to do. Um, And then I'd finished, by the time we'd finished, the driver that was with me, the poor guy that got the short straw to get the boss to go out up with all day on the van with him. I mean, he was exhausted. And I had to rush home. I had to rush home, change, because I had a gig that night that I was delivering at. And he couldn't believe. He said, what What do you mean? I said, well, what do you mean, what do I mean? This is what I mean. <laughs> It's all relative, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm just, I am blessed with a lot of energy. But honestly, it's exciting, you know. The more you can see, you can do. It just becomes so addictive, and it's it's not addictive in a way. It's never. There's no addiction to to what it brings. It's to what it achieves. Mm, the beautiful so, outcomes. Yeah, so it's all about seeing and and being in this extraordinary place of of having a voice when I never did have one. And now when you have a voice, it's like being able to use it for the betterment of our society. So just before we wrap up and I let you bustle to the next (laughs) little piece of magic that you will spread, if you were were talking to your 21-year-old self and that 21-year-old self was alive today with all of the complexity of the world that we're living in, what single piece of advice would you give her? Just don't ever, ever under, underestimate 
the power of you as a little individual and the actions you can take in society. Just don't ever underestimate that your efforts are valuable. With your teaspoon in hand, go go forth. (laughs) (laughs) Now, with my teaspoon in hand, I do happen to have one on the desk and so now I'm feeling like I'm part of the teaspoon brigade. Great. (laughs) I'm I'm going to say thank you so very much for spending some of your precious time with us. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I feel really honoured and privileged. I told you that she would speak for herself and she nearly jumps out of her skin when she's speaking. So it was an incredibly high energy conversation. Again, I'm going to keep the outro really short because you don't want to hear from me. You just want to hear from the amazing people that we are bringing to you. Next week, I am speaking with the beautifully spoken, if gently spoken, Luke Larson, who I met when I was over in the States. He creates beautiful barns. Um, well, maybe he doesn't recreate. He recreates and restores beautiful barns from sometimes 300-year-old existing buildings that have been built from 300-year-old timbers. So he speaks with an eloquence that will captivate you like it did me. That's enough from me. Over and out. I've got to get into the paddock. Speak soon. Bye.